Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, hello, my name is Elspeth Beard and I am, I'm an architect and I rode a motorbike around the world uh, 40 years ago from 1982 to 1984. Hello, I'm Jackie Thurnow and I've spent a lifetime being a nurse and uh, suddenly took off and decided to do some travelling and ended up buying a motorbike in India and over the next seven years rode it home to the UK. The Driven Chat podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Driven Chat podcast. My name is John Markar, sat beside me as ever is Amy Shaw. Hello. I, I, every time I get confused as if you want me to say hello, I'm Amy Shaw. <laughs> so, <laughs> We've both covered it this week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but one day I will get it before you get to me and you give me the eyes that are like, are you going to speak now? <laughs> we have this very dynamic relationship where either we seem to be reading each other's minds and the, 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 the questions fold in perfectly between each other, or it's like we've never met. Most of the time it's like we've never met. Yeah. But uh, no, I've got a good feeling. Other than that initial start, we're, we're, we're good. <laughs> now, to you at home, the listener, you will notice there is a slight echo in the room, but that's for good reason. And that's because we're recording this episode today in, well, it's a first for me. I've never, ever recorded a podcast before inside a Victorian water tower. Now I am. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of the coolest places we've ever recorded a podcast. It's, I, I'm... It's certainly top three, if, if not number one. We are probably physically the highest we've ever been. Could be, could be the case. <laughs> I will leave the explanation to the water tower, to the architect. And uh, that, as you heard in the intro, firstly, 
Elspeth, lovely to have you. Welcome to the Gym Chat Podcast. Thank you very much and welcome to my water tower. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is a fantastic place and to anyone that's at home trying to envisage what we might mean, uh, this is a, and feel free to fill in any gaps I miss here, this is a Victorian era? It was, yes, it's Victorian. It was built in 1898, wow. so it's right at the end of the sort of slightly mad Victorian buildings yeah. where they used to... Um, yeah, build the most incredible uh, sort of elaborate structures. Um, so this was, so this was actually built to ser to serve the local villages around mm -hmm. here. And I bought it in when did I buy it? Nineteen eighty eight. Nineteen eighty eight. I bought it, and I bought it at auction. It had uh, no planning permission, no listed building consent. So it was a bit of a bit of a gamble, mm. a bit of a risk, um, and I then I then spent a year and a half getting the planning and listed building consent. I had to go to appeal, so they, the local council actually turned me down, and I went to appeal, and I won on appeal, and then I spent the next seven years converting uh, the building into my home, wow. and where I've lived ever since, and I love living here. It's, it's amazing. brilliant. It's great. So right now we're sat in your kitchen. Do you know approximately how high up we are? The kitchen here is about 85 feet up, is wow. that right? Yes. No, it must be more than that because the roof is 130. It's probably about 90 feet up. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And we're not even at the highest point. We so are not. We're here. <laughs> and Jackie, have you, you've been here many times before, I assume. Oh, this is my second visit. Oh, fantastic. And are you staying, did, were you a guest at... Yes, I've, I've stayed uh, the last two nights, and before that I stayed for a couple of nights wow. too. Not a, not a bad place to stay. It's <laughs> amazing. I just love it. And this morning I've been looking around the local, the local town of Godalming. Is it Godalming or Godalming? Well, I say Godalming, but oh, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been rummaging around the shops there and having a look and sitting in the lovely sunshine in the park. Nice. It's a lovely place. It is. This is a nice corner of the world. I used to have an office very close to here in Peasmarsh, so I feel very happy to be back. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely part of the country. Um, now, I don't really know where to start with this conversation because we've got two amazing women with amazing stories. Both of you have completed amazing journeys and adventures. Um, I might completely chicken out here and say, Amy, the, <laughs> these are your guests. They are, yes. So, um, yeah, I mean, where would you like to start? You've worked with both Jackie and Elspeth before, haven't you? Yes. So, um, so where did you all meet? So I initially met Elspeth probably about five, five, I'm going to do five years ago. I think it was about 2016. Yeah, yeah um, I think it was. I hadn't ridden a motorcycle myself at this point. I think I just, I maybe had my CBT or something like that. And um, yeah, I met you because I got sent here on, a, on an assignment to photograph you because you'd just written your book and you were promoting your book. And knowing nothing about you before then, I then got one of your books, read it, and then completely fell in love with you after reading it. And then I was like, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that honestly began, I'd like fangirl, post fangirl. And then I started to ride myself. And then from that riding experience, I ended up doing a lot, a lot more shoots with motorcycles. And then that case is how I met Jackie. And that was only recently, wasn't it? We did it this shoot with Royal Enfield probably about two months ago. It was back in January? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so we're recording yes. in yeah, end of, oh, middle of March, in so yes, in, in January. Yeah. And you'd think doing a motorcycle shoot in January is a silly idea, but we actually got very, very lucky, didn't we, with, with the weather. Oh, and it, it was super. It was, it was actually a bit, I think it's better than it is today, to be honest, wasn't it? But it was quite, quite warm and lovely. And um, yeah, so we met on a, on a photo shoot then. And then as we got chatting, 
you were like, you know, I've just done a few adventures and I was like, oh, tell me a bit more. And you're like, oh, you know, I bought a motorcycle in India and rode home in the, you know, when I was like, <laughs> over 50. And I was like, say what? This is amazing. <laughs> and so I was like, have you ever heard of this lady called Elspeth Beard that's done around the world motorcycle? And you said, well, funny enough, we're, we're, we're mates. So I was like, this, I've got to get you both onto the podcast together to be able to talk about your experiences individually, collectively, the similarities, differences, because... I mean, for a start, Elspeth, you were the, I want to say, youngest, or were you youngest? I was 23 when you I left. Oh, you're very so, young to do yeah, it. Well, yes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I probably was. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, you, over the, in the 80s, wasn't it? Yes. Like, yes. Yeah. And then Jackie. I was you, probably the oldest. Well, I, you know what? <laughs> I, just the, the, well, the difference, I would, first of all, I suppose, I'd like to hear about some of your standout stories. Although, I suppose we can't tell too much because we also, we both have books. And so we do want people to go and read your stories in your books because... There's something I don't think you ever understand about any adventure, like it necessarily hearing the odd story here and there, until you completely absorb yourself into one's written word to be able to understand what was going through your minds at that point. And I mean, yeah, Elspeth, I have read your book already. Jackie, I'm yet to read yours. And I think just before we hit play on the on the uh, podcast, I have read about the first 20 pages of your book and had to put it down because I knew I would not be able to put it down if I, if I carried on. I'm yet to finish another book. So... Already, I mean, the initial page of your, of your book starts about leeches crawling out of a toilet, I think it is, as you're pulling them off you. <laughs> That's right. I, I didn't know where to start when I wrote my book, and I asked a friend, uh, and I said, what, what, what stands out to you as being um, one, of, one of the funniest moments? And he said, oh, the leech story. Start with the leech story. <laughs> so I, I did. And yes, that was in um, northern India, in Sikkim. And I was traveling with the Dutchman who persuaded me to buy the motorbike initially. And we'd stopped at a monastery to stay overnight. They, they let out rooms. And we'd gone for a walk. It was a very humid, um, it was the rainy season. And we'd gone for a walk and he'd laughed his socks off at me because a leech had uh, ambushed me from a tree and landed on my forehead and was busy oh, wow. sucking blood out of my forehead. And he took a photograph and thought it was hilarious. And then he... <laughs> tore it pulled it off and of course I had blood pouring down my face and then later on when we got back to the uh, the monastery where we were staying we noticed when we took our boots off that we had a lot of leeches inside our boots because when they're empty they're very thin and they wriggle through the weave of your uh, oh, woolly wow. socks really? and uh, and then when when they've gorged themselves on your blood they go all fat like slugs and they just <laughs> drop off so we took our boots and socks off and we were paddling around in this white tiled bathroom leaving red footprints everywhere and we thought we'd better see where else they've gone and he'd been wearing shorts oh and then it was my turn to laugh and uh, I didn't take a photograph of where he had a leech but he had a leech attached where most gentlemen wouldn't want a leech attached so that's the leech story and that's what, that's what I started the book with because I mean, it seemed like a good start already just the that story alone it just makes you want to read the rest of it immediately in both of your your books because both of them will be full of those kinds of stories and 
I mean, I can just see John just like <laughs> wincing away next to me. As, a, as every man, I think, in the, in the world <laughs> listening to this has just done. It's that. It's a bit like when you, yeah, you see an unfortunate accident, you think, oh, I can just imagine that, and I don't want to imagine it anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, we should probably kind of peel back a little bit and talk about both of your reasons, your initial reasons, for, first of all, for riding motorcycles. Mm. Elspeth. Well, I kind of got into it as a bit of an accident, as one does in life, I think. Um, it all started off when I was expelled from school, <laughs> which at the time I thought was, you know, my world had come to an end, but actually it was a really good thing. So I was sent to a college in London where I finished off my A-levels, and it was when I was at the college in London that I met these group of motorcyclists, and that's how I was introduced to motorbikes. And Simon, one of my mates, sold me his his um, Yamaha YB100 um, and uh, so and I literally I just saw it as a cheap and easy way to get around London I didn't see it and, and actually when I started riding it I, I, I can remember thinking this was great because I really felt sort of free but I'd been cycling around London before that and my parents were great because we lived in central London but they allowed us a huge amount of freedom and so I was, even when I was younger, I was always just going out wandering around the streets on my own when you could do that. <laughs> and, uh, and then as soon as I could cycle, I was on a bicycle and I was bicycling all over London. Um, so, but, so my first bike was the, was the, um, uh, 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 the 100cc Yamaha and then a year later I bought the 250 Honda because I got a little bit bored of the Yamaha, I was a bit slow. So, <laughs> so I bought myself a 250 Honda, and then and then I thought, well, this is a bit better, and then I thought, well, it's a little bit slow, I got used to that, and then I, about a year later, I bought my BMW 600s, which was a R60 stroke six. And it was kind of that bike when I suddenly realized, you know, you could go places on this. Mm. I could travel, I could explore on this. Would you say that it was the bike then that inspired you to think, oh, how far could I go? Well, I may as well go around the world. Well, it wasn't quite. So, well, it was, I think I first thought, actually, you could, you know, you could go places on this. My first trip, I went to Scotland. Mm -hmm. That was a two-week trip around Scotland. I then went to Ireland. And then uh, the following summer, I went around Europe. So that was my first, my little taster trips. And they got bigger and bigger and longer and longer and further and further each trip. And then in, in the summer, the following summer, I flew out to Los Angeles and I bought myself another BMW, an old 75 stroke five. And I rode that across from the West Coast to the East Coast. And I think it was somewhere on that trip, I kind of thought, Hmm, I wonder whether you could ride around the world. I wonder whether it's possible to ride around the world. I suppose that's one thing, especially when you are 23 years old and you think to yourself, well, you know, I haven't got kids or any real responsibility and the world is literally your oyster. Flipping now to Jackie, when you're, you know, how old were you when you, when you landed in India? Uh, just coming up to 50. Okay. Uh, the first time I'd been backpacking... Um, uh, at the age of 48 and uh, that's when I met the Dutchman mm -hmm. and then the the second time was when he had persuaded me that all I needed in my life was an Enfield and that uh, I needed to, to travel with him. So you were riding at this point already? I'd already, yes I'd started riding in this very, very hot summer in 1976 mm -hmm. 
you won't remember. And uh, <laughs> it was so hot for weeks and weeks and weeks. It didn't rain. It was really oppressive heat. And my uh, now ex-husband came home from work uh, to find me trying to keep myself and two small little girls in a, in a plastic paddling pool in the back garden, trying to keep us all cool. Mm. And he said, well, look, why don't you have a whiz around the streets on this? And he went to and from work with on a Honda 90, mm-hmm. stepped through. And, uh, you know, like Elspeth bombing around London, he used to bomb around Bristol mm-hmm. on that. And he said, oh, go on, it'll cool you down. Now, I was a, a nurse, a qualified nurse, and I've been working on the casualty unit at Bristol Royal Infirmary and seen people being scraped off the road and brought in with head injuries and broken legs and um, terrible injuries. And I said, I'm not getting on one of those things. They're they're dangerous and uh, noisy and dirty. And (laughs) no. Anyway, eventually he persuaded me and I already had a a car license. And I think in those days, um, I'm not sure, uh, anyway, I just got on it and borrowed his helmet and he, he showed me how to twist the throttle to go and how to <laughs> use the brake to stop and, and that's what I did and um, I whizzed around the streets of uh, Bristol and 20 minutes later I was hooked wow. and that was it and I've had a motorbike more or less ever since uh, with him initially and then, uh, and then on my own uh, afterwards. Yes, because in those days you could you could buy a bike up to two hundred and fifty cc without taking any test at all. So yeah. just as long as you had those a car. were the days. Yes. Wow. No, I don't even think you had a car license. Oh, really? You didn't have to have a car license. <laughs> you used to go to the post office, fill out a form. They gave you like a uh, provisional license, and with that you could you could buy a bike up to two hundred and fifty cc. Stick some L plates on it and off you went. <laughs> you didn't have to do any test at all. Wow. And when I did take my test, it was in the old days where the examiner would just um, ask you some questions about the highway code. And then um, no, you have to, and you had to go around the block. Yeah. And it, when he stood out and put, held his hand up, if you could stop, that's it. You passed your test. That was all there was to it. Not like it is now at all. God. I think wow. passing my test as a, as a grown like I passed my test when I was 26 and I'm 30 now and honestly it's probably the scariest thing I've ever done as a grown I mean the, the best thing I've ever learned yeah. as a grown but the, the, the last time I remember tr- being truly like frightened about something because you were quite old and you passed your test weren't you John? I was quite old when I passed yeah I was <laughs> grand old age of 28 <laughs> when I passed my test yeah um, but yeah I completely agree with you I remember thinking both for the theory aspect because we had to do mm-hmm. the theory first and then you had well in fact for the firstly for the 125 license that was just a bit a bit of a ride around the car park for two days we'll give you a certificate that's it you're good to go but then yes for the the two different modules the theory test, I remember thinking, oh, this is actually quite hard in comparison to the car one. And then, of course, the practical side of riding the bikes wasn't too hard, but the, the test sy- uh, system for weaving in and out of cones and showing that you can manoeuvre the bikes, I remember thinking, I'm actually quite nervous. This is a lot <laughs> yeah. harder than just driving a car. But rightly so. I think it's it should be harder, really, because, <laughs> yeah. because of those dangers that you'll know all, all too well, Jackie. But, um, I mean, kudos to you two for being as you said, a nurse and seeing all of the, yeah. you know, the things that we as, when you get into motorcycling, people say, oh, you know, the death trap, you shouldn't do that. And mm-hmm. I just, you know, now riding for, for a few years and thinking, yeah, okay, I can see how, you know, there's definite points you can seriously hurt yourself. And I've been knocked off once, but not badly. And I mean, Elspeth, in your book, you talk about quite a severe accident you had. 
Jackie, have you had any? Well, go on, give, give us a. Don't I want, want to spoil him. the story for you. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't want you to spoil the story because I'm also going to read your book after this. Yeah. And, and, well, yeah. Uh, okay. Yes, quite a few accidents and breaks. A broken leg in Pakistan. Uh, broken collarbone in Australia. Because in Australia, the the potholes. Um, and they, they get blown over by bull dust, which is very like icing ah. sugar, really thin. And you can't see the potholes. And and you, I sort of, it wasn't going very fast, probably 40 miles an hour, something like that. And just front wheel went in one, and I catapulted over the top and, and ended up in front of the bike thinking, oh, something hurts. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, broken collarbone. Then I had to tow my uh, travelling companion and his bike with this broken collarbone uh, to the next little village out in the outback. So oh, gosh. that was good. Lots of paracetamol and stuff. <laughs> and how does that, as a medical professional, what goes through your head at a time where you think, I, I'm assuming you had an inkling of what might have happened. I think I've broken my collarbone. Although no, you're not, so sure. no oh, okay. not really. No, as a child, I was always hurting myself <laughs> and I was just dusted <laughs> off and told I'd be all right. Oh, you'll be all right. You'll live. So I, I had that attitude and still have. Actually, oh, excellent. <laughs> no, I'm I'm not at all a um, fussy person. Fantastic. Injuries and things. Do you think, from both of your experiences, if you were a fussy person when it came to either a bit of danger when it comes to accidents or getting ill? I'm, I mean, I know that Elspeth, you've definitely got poorly. Jackie, I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever got ill. Like, we always hear about eating or drinking certain foods over, you know, in in India, thinking, oh, you're going to get ill, for example. Um, I mean, you've got a little bit more seriously ill than that, Elspeth, mm-hmm. but it's, do you think that people who are a little bit afraid of that should embark on something like a journey like what you've both been on? Or would you just be like, just don't even think about it? <laughs> Jackie's just laughing in her lap. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Elspeth? Um, I, think, I think, well, for, speaking for myself, I certainly accepted I was going to be ill. Mm-hmm. It was one of those things I just knew. I was going to be ill. Uh, I mean, both my parents were um, um, doctors, so they obviously kitted me out with antibiotics and this first aid kit and all this stuff to take. And they made sure I was jabbed for cholera, typhoid, all the you know all the whatever jabs I needed. Um, so I did I did my best, uh, but I, I knew I was going to get ill, um, and I knew I was going to have accidents, and I knew I was going to get injured, and. I, I don't think, I mean, obviously you don't, you know, if it doesn't happen, that's great. But I think you have to kind of accept that as part of the, I don't think you can think I'm going to ride around the world and nothing's going to happen because it, because it is. And, yeah. and you have to accept it and you have to be, uh, you know, sort, sort of, um, you know, prepared for it mentally, I think. Hmm. So more mentally prepared than... Like, you sound like you were also physically prepared with lots of drugs with you as well to help well, you. Well, I was lucky because yeah. my parents were doctors mm. and so they... I didn't have lots of drugs, but, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I had literally a handful of antibiotics. But yeah. actually, for those days, that was quite a lot of... Mm. I mean, I met other travellers who didn't have anything, you know, whereas I did have basic antibiotics mm-hmm. and I had a bandage. And mm. I did actually carry um, some spare needles and... Uh, Wow. One of those drip things. Yeah, as well. I, I had one of those and, yeah, to start carried, with. Yeah, and plasters, and it wasn't a it wasn't a massive kit, but it was very basic. Yeah. But uh, it, it was a lot more than a lot of people carried. Yeah. Um, and then, and then after a while, you realise that um, they have pharmacies 
pretty much everywhere you go anyway. Mm. So I jettisoned quite a lot of the stuff I brought with me because you can buy it wherever you are. Um, antibiotics you can just buy over the counter in a lot of places. You don't need a medical prescription for them. And they don't last them. anyway a long time, do no, they? You, you no, You can't carry them for like a year. I don't think they, no. they you know. They're... And they have doctors and, and pharmacists. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I got rather blasé towards the end, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. So, I mean, let's flip on to the reason why you started your, your journey on Jacket. Because you say that you, you, at the beginning, talk about, you know, you flew to India, bought a bike, and thought, I'll ride at home. Was it literally like that? Did you intend on riding a motorcycle, like buying a motorcycle in... in was, were you in Chennai, where Royal Enfield yes, are based? Yes, yes. Uh, well... And unlike Elspeth, who had a goal, and um, I, I didn't have one at all. I had backpacked the previous year. I, I had to do all that travelling that uh, my husband and I were going to do together, and I ended up doing it on my own. And actually quite liked the life of, um, of travelling, in, especially in Asia. I, it suited me very well. And whilst I was backpacking in Asia, I met a Dutchman who was travelling on a funny old motorbike and I thought, what's, what's that? And we got chatting and it turned out it was a Royal Enfield that he'd just bought in Chennai. And uh, so we ended up spending some time together in, in India, in Jaisalmer. Um, we went camping in the desert and, uh, that, and that was that. You meet such a lot of people when you're travelling and you have to say goodbye to most of them and he was another traveler that I had to say goodbye to and I thought I'd never see him again. I went back from my year backpacking and um, I didn't have any, I didn't have a home, I'd sold everything and uh, I was staying with my mum and uh, then he turned up on the doorstep quite unannounced and said, um, why don't you buy an Enfield like mine and we'll travel around together in India. So I hadn't been able to settle down at all. And I was still wondering what to do with myself. And I thought, yes, okay. He was a great deal younger than me, quite good looking. And I, <laughs> he was, made me laugh. He was great fun. And I thought, well, I can't think of anything better to do. So, yes. So that's why I flew to Chennai, bought my, my own Enfield, and we travelled together. Did you know at that point that you, were you going to travel back to the UK? Or did you just think, I'll oh, just plod along see where I end up exactly it was the <laughs> latter I had no idea I would be bringing the bike home eventually I thought after about six months he'll get fed up with me and I'll go home and be a normal person again take up my <laughs> health visiting career which I'd left and uh, and, and be, be a normal sensible person again I have it so didn't many... happen like that well, and now I have so many questions for both of you offshoots or like multiple offshoots of, of, of that answer as well for a start what did your respective loved ones say when you both said, right, I'm going to go and do this? So Elspeth, I guess, your friends and parents, and then Jackie, your own children, I guess, who would have been quite old themselves at that point, is that right? So They were, yes, they were both working, they both had jobs, they'd finished university and were making their own way in the world. Okay, then, so Elspeth, what would your... What would uh, well, my parents did everything they could possibly do to stop me. Um, <laughs> my mum, my she just, I mean, she hated motorbikes. I think she was a doctor. She worked in A&E when she did her house job thing. So she was, like mm. you say, she saw all these injured motorcyclists coming in. And 
So she hated motorbikes. And I think she thought when I started riding them, it would be a little fad and I'd get over it, you know. I'd, um, and, and then when I got another bike and then another bike, and then I thought that... Then I, and she just, she, was, she just couldn't understand how anybody would want to ride a, you know, a motorbike, let alone ride one around the world. It was just completely out of her spectrum mm -hmm. of understanding. And uh, my dad... So he was very odd about it because he was a very um, um, eccentric psychiatrist and he very much lived in his little world of his own. <laughs> and he didn't really ever say anything, good or bad. He didn't try to put me off, he didn't encourage me. But in a quiet sort of way, I think he was quite proud of what I was mm. doing, which was quite nice. But he couldn't give me any encouragement because then that was obviously against my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to kind of, you know, play it. So, so um, yeah, so my parents' attitude towards it was very odd. Um, and my friends, I think my friends kind of just sort of went along with it and thought I'd be back in three months, to be honest. I don't think they ever took it that seriously. I don't think... They ever thought I'd do it? I don't know. We didn't. I mean, I didn't really talk, about, you know, about it a lot. I didn't really know where I was going to go or how I was going to, you know. I just sort of left, and I and I, I mean, it wasn't in the days where you could sort of plan things very much. Mm. I mean, there wasn't the internet. There wasn't any of the social media or no, information that you can get now. It was really hard to find out things about countries and 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 so you literally you just I just thought right I'll get from here and I'll get to America and then when I get to America I'll work out where I'm going to go from New York whether I'm going to ride north or or west or south or and then when I've done that bit I'll worry about the next bit. And do you think that lack of access to information do you think do you see that as a blessing or as a curse? So I, think a I lot of see people... it as a blessing. Perfect. I think I really do. Yeah. I, I, I am so glad I travelled when I did. Yeah. So, so glad. You just didn't know. You, you couldn't plan anything. But that's what you know, was so great about it. Mm. You never knew where you were going to be that night. You didn't know where you were going to end up. You didn't know anything. And mm. every day was just a, a real adventure. And that's kind of gone now, I think. Yeah. And I think because it's possible to plan, people kind of do. I mean, I've recently I came back from uh, a three-week motorbike trip in 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 um, Mexico, and I think it's probably one of the first times I've travelled on a motorbike on my own in um, in a sort of country like that for probably since my 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 round the world trip and i went obviously with my smartphone <laughs> and i went with gps um and i tried not to use it i also took a map and i thought no i'm going to do it i'm, go I'm going to use a map i'm going to do it the old <laughs> way and within a day of using a map i thought oh, can't be bothered with this. <laughs> and I switched on the GPS and it was just so much easier. It is so much easier. It's, it's, you can't compare what it was like yeah. when I did it to what it's like now. And I think that, that and must you, be... But, I mean, you get hooked onto it. You, oh, you, you, you get, and you almost think, oh, I've got to book a hotel for tonight and, and maybe I should book one for tomorrow night. Mm. And then if you don't manage to find anywhere, it's almost this sort of panic <laughs> sets in because you, you haven't got somewhere to stay and you're going to 
turn up in this foreign town and you're not going to know where you are and that's what I used to do every day yeah, and it didn't bother me in the slightest no. so it's really strange how and it was, a, it was an interesting experience to have done that um, because I haven't really ever done that since I did my um, trip and I got back in 84 or whatever uh-huh. I can't help but just think about what your parents must have been thinking because obviously at the age of 23 you're as, as much of an adult as you're ever going to be as far as you're concerned at that age, aren't you? Where, but your parents... I knew parents, it. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> and, and likewise, you'll be spurred on by your friends who also know everything and they've got, they're as old as they're ever going to be and everything's the world is at their oyster. But for your parents, who even more so than any generation moving forward, it must have been just so terrifying because travel at that time was a real luxury. And as you say, that inability to plan or, or have a... Yeah, that, that luxury of knowing that tomorrow I'll be staying here and the day after I'll be staying there. As a traveller, you'd think that must be quite daunting, but as a parent, to think, where is my daughter going to be? I know, but I think also you've got to remember that in those times, because there wasn't, you didn't know about places. So mm-hmm. like now there's almost too much information. Yeah. So you know about all the the bad things yeah, and, the things and what's going on in every single country. In those days, you just didn't know. You, it's, and so they were just as kind of um, innocent and, or not innocent, but they were, you know, they didn't know about um, what was going on in countries, same as I didn't. So, like now, it's almost too much information. You, it makes you think that all these terrible things are going to happen. Whereas in those days, you, you, it was just, it was like a blank canvas. You just, you just went out and you just kind of explored ignorance and, really was bliss. Yeah, ignorance was exactly. bliss yeah. and it was ignorance for them as well as for, for me yeah. so it's a slightly yeah but I, mean, I suppose going to now like when when you went Jack in 2000s was the inter- I remember the internet being around when I was I would have been nine I think in 2000 so it was I remember playing like some internet games when I was about 12 or something like that but was it, it I suppose it was similar to when Elspeth went, where you, you still had very little access to the internet, like, as in you wouldn't usually go on the internet to find a hotel that you'd stay that night. So it was all very much a, let's just see where we'll go and we'll map read the, the whole way. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I had an email address and that was it. Uh, but no, I, and I absolutely love not knowing where I'm going or, and I have travelled with other people subsequently who cannot not book ahead and it's it's awful for me really Really is awful especially in some somewhere where you can just stop at stop at the side of the road because i love wild camping Mm. and i love uh, well just sleeping under trees and um hedges and things uh, as you'll read (laughs) Um, so for me to know that there's a hotel booked along the road and we've got to get there uh, and then they'll you There'll be, it spoils the fun. Mm. I, I was a girl guide and uh, my pleasure in life was waiting for the week's camp when uh, we were all under canvas and, and doing pioneering skills and I was doing pioneers badges and campers badges and patrol leader camps and uh, I just love all that um, wild stuff and making furniture out of bits of wood and I always carried a big sheath knife and yeah, I, I love that. I, I'm not so keen on the booking.com I suppose side it, of things. It does take uh, the adventure out of it. Absolutely slightly. spoils it. <laughs> but, <laughs> Terrible. But 
interestingly, it was if you if you go and I need to stay in a big city or something. Mm-hmm. Now, because everybody else is using the internet to book all the hotels, you almost have to use the internet, mm. otherwise you won't find anywhere to stay. Yes. Because they're all booked. Yeah. You know, because I, w- I was talking to about somebody about this, and I was like, oh, no, I wouldn't bother, I won't bother. And he said, well, now you have to. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So Because certain tourist places or, you know, the busy places, mm. everything's booked up. Yeah. I mean, not only a week ahead, sometimes a month ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose also, mm. like, I just think about the idea of going through... Um, I know, so it serves to do a, a non-booked tour around literally the UK. So super easy, just be able to rock up and be like, "Hey, have you got any rooms?" Like, like price-wise as well. I I want to rock up to a, a lovely Yorkshire pub and be like, "Yes, that's two hundred pounds a night." I'm like, "Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Thank you very much. Do anywhere that's cheaper around here." So mm-hmm. I suppose there there are definite pros and cons. And I mean, I'm literally week today. I go on a road trip myself. Um, with my parents and the idea of going on that trip with my my dad would be okay you know if I was just like let's just go and find somewhere but my mum would be like where are we staying tonight she, she's never I took her on her first road trip a couple of years ago and she's loved it ever since but I think she she now needs that element of control especially doing things like road trips are a bit scary for you it's almost like a halfway house of being like okay I feel adventurous but I also feel safe and controlled and it's all okay um yeah and I mean if I said to my mum and dad by the way I'm gonna go and I ride back from India or around the world. They they would. I think my dad would be scared, but he'd be like, kind of your Darnell's. Mm. Like, yes, I go go on. You, you'll do it. And then I think my mum would be like, ring me every single day, please. And mm. I mean, I, I, we didn't we didn't get around to Jackie. I want to know what your what your kids thought about mum yeah. going off on, the, on this amazing adventure. Like, if it was my mum, I'd be like, yes, mum, go for it. I'd be so proud. But I mean, initially, I think I'd be like that, and then I'd be like, actually, that's please be careful. Careful. <laughs> um. Well, because um, they um, there'd, there'd been a breakup in the family, um, they were very glad that I was going because the the um, I uh, they 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 wished me well, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, one of my daughters said, uh, "Oh, mum, don't feel you're in exile because I was deemed the guilty party." <laughs> so um, so I didn't feel I had to stay away mm-hmm. to start with. Um, and then I started enjoying myself a lot, and they and I didn't know I was going to be away for seven years, and uh, and they certainly didn't, and it was more um, when you when you coming home, and well I'm all right as I am, thank you. So uh, and they came out to visit me a couple of times, nice. which was very nice. Amazing. I again I'm fascinated by the two of you having embarked on such amazing journeys at very different stages of life. Elspeth, that your very early years as an adult, and Jackie, you've lived a life, you've raised children, you've done what most people would regard as the the checklist of life chapters to go through. As we all have done a bit of travelling here, a, free, a, a common statement that I remember hearing when I was even working overseas um, on temporary assignments here and there, and a question that would often get thrown to me is, um, usually from another Brit who's working abroad, what is it you're running away from? And it would always be this amazing question. And at the first few times of hearing it, you go, well, no, nothing. I'm, I'm here, I want to work overseas. And then the more you think of it, you go, well, ah, well yeah, actually, maybe, maybe I am running away from something. Maybe I just wanted a, a completely different world to experience or a new environment. Now, I won't delve too deep into anything because I know there, there are often... Um, 
some very deep and meaningful reasons as to why we want to run away. But one of the things I always like to talk about, especially with bikers, is this, and this is very personal to me, so I don't know if I share this with everyone or if everyone shares this with me, I should say. But I find riding a motorcycle a lot of the time quite um, meditative. For me, the sensation of a long ride, even completely alone, not riding with anyone else, and this could even be just a late night ride back to the Midlands from visiting family in London, a very boring ride up the M40, very unexciting. For me, that can be some of the happiest times because my brain just empties at that time. All I'm focusing on is the task in hand and that's not falling off, riding along happily. And sometimes it's good, I find it as a good time to process thoughts and really think about things and other times it's just the complete opposite. It's complete emptiness. Now, my example is riding for two hours from London to the Midlands. You've both been riding at times for years around the world. What was that experience like for you? And do you share that notion of, was it therapeutic? Was there any times where you wish you did have company? How was the emotions for you? Uh, well, especially in Australia, in the outback, you can be going all day. And to avoid the flies, I, I didn't stop very much. Mm. And that was definitely meditative. And it was um, quite uncanny sometimes that the past would present itself like a, a film mm -hmm. in, in my head. And I'd go back into childhood events that I thought I'd forgotten about. And, oh, yes, I remember that. And, and I'd have light bulb moments. Oh, that's why I'm like I am, because that happened. And it was, it was very therapeutic. And I found out a lot about myself. And they say, don't they, that oh, I'm going away to find myself. <laughs> uh, but I, it's, it was true in my case, especially on the long stretches in Australia, where there was very little change in the landscape. And uh, yes, there was, there was time to let my mind wander mm. whilst listening to the bike. And I don't know how people ride listening to music. I, uh, I, I couldn't possibly. So yes, letting my mind wander and just looking at the uh, at this vegetation and the animals and birds was lovely, really, really good. Recommend it. Yeah, I bet. And Elspeth, as a young adult, not going to be as much to process, but can you remember... Did you have uh, well, a similar experience? It was interesting that you mentioned Australia because that's exactly where I struggled that, um, um, in Australia. And it, and it was just this vast expanse of three, four hundred miles and you don't see a tree. You know, oh, it's just... And I did struggle in Australia. And I, but I also think it's the, it's the thing of putting your helmet on as well. So you're very much enclosed in your... Well, for me, I kind of feel I'm very much enclosed... It's not just riding the bike, it's actually the thing of putting your helmet on. And I used to wear, you know, like a full-face helmet. And I think you're very much kind of drawn into yourself because, you, because you've got this sort of helmet on. Um, I actually used to spend a lot of my time working, thinking about my bike. <laughs> <laughs> I used to spend so much time... Um, I, I got slightly obsessed, especially in, in Australia, um, with the petrol consumption. <laughs> and because it's very easy to, to do it there, because you could do a constant 60 miles an hour for 300 miles. Mm. And so, whereas anywhere else you'd stop and start, or you'd go through a village, and you'd, you know, it's all the. But there you could, so you could really test its. Um, <laughs> it sounds really odd. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the perfect place to test 
and work out its mileage consumption. So I would do a stretch of X hundred miles at 60 miles an hour, then I did it at 65, and I'd do it on a, on, a, on a completely empty tank to a full tank, so I knew I was com- completely full, then I'd do the X number of miles, and I'd do it at 60 miles an hour, and I'd do it at 65 miles an hour, then at 70 miles an hour, 75, 70, and then I'd work out what the difference in the mileage, and I'd keep the throttle absolutely constant. So I did. So it was stuff like that I used to do. I don't know why. I just, it was just past the time. That's got to be the mathematical brain of an architect. Well, <laughs> Because my brain couldn't do that. I just, there's no No, way. No, no, no. You used to take me hours, you, because I'm I'm (laughs) not very good at mathematics. So you used to take me a long time to work it out. Oh, you're so much more practical than me. (laughs) I just wanted to know. And then I I think about when I changed the oil and how many miles I was going to do and when I'd next have to change the oil and when I'd have to do the service. Mm. I just had all this stuff. So I used to think about my bike a lot. Um, I used to sing a lot. God knows what I used to sing, but I used to <laughs> sing a lot in my helmet. Yeah. Um, and I talked a lot to myself as well. I used to talk all the time to myself, which I'm sure you yes. did, Jackie, as well. Definitely. Do you both uh, talk to your bikes as well? Yes. I do talk to my bike all <laughs> yes. the time. I say, come on, we can get to the end. Yeah, I always used to talk to my bike, definitely. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to ask you, should we stop here? And then, oh, yeah, nice. this looks a nice place. Let's stop here, shall we? And no, then... I never used to ask my bike oh, I... stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was in control of that bit. <laughs> well, sometimes my bike stopped. But, and when it wanted to stop, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, yeah, no. I used to encourage my bike. So I used to say, right, if you get me over this mountain pass, I'll give you an oil change. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> so I used to sort of, you know, coast her along. To, 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 to. But I never used to ask her, oh, shall we stop here? <laughs> I usually apologise to my bike, especially when I've, I've only got 350 and doing a, I did Cornwall to, to Scotland ride on it. And I knew that it needed a bit of, it, it, was, it was tired at that point and it did need like an engine reboot basically. And it was one of those where you're just like, come on, we've got, we've got this, we can overtake this lorry. <laughs> the rest of the guys that I was with, all, you know, modern bikes overtaking this lorry with absolute ease. And then it's just me, tummy to my tank, trying to <laughs> just go, come on, just edge round it. And so, uh, yeah. But I mean, John, do you talk to your bike? I mean, you haven't got a bike of yours at the moment, have you? No, I've got, I'm very fortunate to have a Royal Enfield at the moment, which oh. has been provided to me by Royal Enfield as a nice six month loan, which is wonderful. What model have you got? I've got the Continental GT Twin 650. Very nice. It's a lovely it is lovely, yeah, in the what they call the Mr. Clean spec, which 
essentially means chrome with chrome with added chrome. It's uh, it's very <laughs> very very shiny, um, and I love it. I I I have yeah with previous bikes. I don't think I've ever spoken to the bike, but I can certainly relate to talking to myself, and I don't know if it's even trying to think. It's one. Of, it's, it's a strange thing trying to process a memory of something you really haven't tried to bank at the time, but I definitely mutter things to myself or I'll talk about other road users at the time so there'll be a lot of criticism towards other road users <laughs> but clearly I'm only talking to myself nobody else can hear it but yeah uh, nattering along to myself uh, I wouldn't describe myself as a singer but I do occasionally have a good old sing song <laughs> especially if there's a thunderous v-twin beneath me because um, then nobody can hear it, not even me. It's probably the best way for my singing. I have like go-to songs that I like. Can't, if I can't think of anything else to sing at the time, I'll have like a song that I'll go to initially, which is the Beach Boys. Wouldn't it be nice? And then mm. it's probably the only song that I can remember the tune and the words to. So. I wonder if there's something in like the, the vibration frequency of the engine that triggers the beats. Like there's something very, very, very <laughs> subliminal somewhere that triggers a certain song. But it's also one of those you can sing badly and it still sounds kind of okay. You can sing loud and you kind of just it sounds quite jolly so that's why that's why I go to that go to it um but I mean and also sometimes when you at least for me like I don't know it probably took me about three years before I finally started to feel actually comfortable riding motorcycle like I was still quite nervous every time I got on a bike for quite a while and singing to myself helped me get over those nerves especially when I was doing my test I went and when I, when I did my, my U-turn in the, you know, the car park, oh, yeah. I had to sing, oh, I think it's Tina Turner. I can't stand <laughs> Tina Turner. It's the only first thing that came to my head. And I, just as I was trying to do it, just trying to think, don't put my foot down, don't put my foot down to get round. So, I mean, when you're on your, your journeys, there must have been points where, you know, both of you individually thought, why the hell am I doing this? And was this a terrible idea? But, but at the same time, you would have also imagined, thought, this is amazing. Why haven't I done this sooner? Mm. Jackie's looking as if to be like, no, I don't really think that. <laughs> I'm trying to remember a time when I thought I wasn't doing the right thing and wasn't enjoying it. Uh, even when I broke my leg, I thought, oh, I wonder what's going to happen now. <laughs> this will be interesting. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. I'll have, to, I'll have to give that serious consideration because most of the time I was enjoying it. I mean, yes, it, it has its aimless days and days when you think, um, what am I doing this for? But I was never, never felt I'd made the wrong decision in doing mm. it. What about like even when you were on the plane going to, you've said goodbye to your loved ones, you're on the plane heading to India. Did that like any, any point of that bit think, am I, is this, is this a good idea? No. <laughs> you're very brave. But I guess at that point you didn't know what you were in well, for no, yourself, did ignorance you? is bliss, yeah. isn't it? And, and I'm a great believer in everything will be all right. <laughs> so, yeah. And it generally is, so... Uh, no, I, I, I haven't got a fear gene, I think. I just go madly into things without thinking. That is a big <laughs> disadvantage with me. I do go uh, recklessly around. Yeah, I think that's called bravery. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yes. Not stupidity, then. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's, there's often a fine line. But I, I certainly share that yes. with you, Jackie, in the sense of a lot of my friends, a lot of my family look at some life choices that I've made in the past and think, even asked me at the time, are you sure? And the answer is almost always, no, I'm not sure, but I'd rather have a go and see how it pans out than always wonder what yeah, if. It'll be fun. It'll be fun, yeah, yeah. And chances are it'll also be fine at some point. What about you, Um, I would say when I started off, I was very apprehensive. Mm -hmm. I was, I, I wouldn't say I was nervous. I wouldn't say I was frightened even, actually. I was just apprehensive. Um, 
I I just had no idea what I was kind of I mean I knew why I was going um but I just it was just I had no idea where I was going to go or, or anything so I was apprehensive um but I think when I was actually on the trip really the only times where I felt oh I wish I was at home or was when I was ill mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was the times I struggled um, even when I had my accidents and I was in hospital and I was whatever, I kind of managed to get through those. Um, but I think when I was ill, and I think, and, th- and that's the big difference of traveling on your own. Mm. When you're ill and you're on your own and you're in a tent mm. and you can't even drag yourself out to get some water, you can't get food, you've got nobody to, to help you, you've got nobody to get anything for you, you've got to entirely look after yourself and you can barely move because you're so ill. Mm. And that, that it was the times like that that I, I struggled. How did you get through that? Did you have to just think Well, you do because you do. Mm. You know, it's like all these things. I think most people can get through a lot more uh, in life than they realise they can because they don't have to. But if you actually have to do it and you have to face up to it and you have to deal with it, you you amazingly, you people do. You find this sort of inner strength um, because you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was certainly travelling alone and getting ill was... Um, was very difficult. So a question, to, I suppose, to both of you from now. If you were to do your trips again, would you go on your own with people or mix it up? Person, <laughs> personally, for me, I, I'd like to mix it up. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to do it. I mean, I, I did the first 18 months on my own, and then I met also a Dutch guy. Um, <laughs> and we met in India, and we travelled overland back uh, to the UK, or back to Europe. Um, and the difference, I mean, the difference of travelling with somebody to travelling on... I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't just like 10 times easier or 100 times easier. It was like a million times easier. It was so much easier traveling with somebody else Mm. because you always had, well, A, you had two bikes, Mm. you know, which made life easier. If one of you ran out of petrol, the other could go ahead and get petrol. You always had somebody to talk to about trying to discuss what the problems with the bike were. If If you're entirely on your own, which is what you were in those days, with no phone, absolutely nothing, and you were entirely on your own, and you're in the middle of India or Pakistan or wherever, and your bike's broken down, you know, and there's nobody around. I mean, what are you going to do? You, you have to, you know, you get out your hand manual and you know you have to sort it out on your own. There's nobody there who speaks English. There's nobody there who even understands what a BMW, how it works. So you have nobody to talk about. You have nobody to write, oh, it might be the diode, it might be this, it might be the alternator, what do you think? Nothing. You have to do it all yourself. And that becomes quite exhausting. And mm. I did find that quite tiring. And that's why when I met Robert, oh, it was bliss, absolute <laughs> bliss. And he was like a BMW mechanic. So they were better. <laughs> so all these, all these bodge repairs I'd kind of done on my own, <laughs> made up and tried to fix on my own on the side of the road. You know, he was there and he always knew, oh, it was bliss, absolute bliss. And also when you're ill, as I say, you've got somebody to look after you. 
Yeah. It just takes the edge off. Yeah. What about you, Jack? It, it, you know, it takes, yeah. sorry, it just the, the, all the extremes, uh, yes. it takes all, all, all those away. So mm. it's much, much, much easier. Okay. Yes. Mm. Yes, I, I have to agree with that. I, uh, when I wasn't on my own when, when my leg got broken. I was with uh, my Dutchman. And uh, so that, I don't know how I would have coped without him. Um, it depends on the person you're travelling with, of course. Um, as I say, Hen Hendrikus was uh, good fun to be with. He'd already been travelling on a motorbike for a while when we met. So he knew the ropes and I didn't. And so I learned from him. He, he made me, um, well, I was keen to learn how to do mechanics and, and learn how my bike worked because I'd always had Japanese bikes up until that time. I'd taken them to um, a mechanic every spring and said, do what you need to do. And when I had the Enfield, I didn't even know I had to change the oil. And he, he, he taught me how to, how to do things and how to change cables and how to change the oil and how to do everything. So that um, when we did part company, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't unable to do these things for myself. Um, but I think it can be more wearing to be with the wrong person than on your own. So it really does yeah. depend who you're traveling with. And you have to have the same ideals. You have to have same ideas about budget, whether you're going to use maps or, or sat-nav, whether you're going to be wild camping or staying in hotels, and whether you, what distances you're going to do every day. Are your bikes compatible? Mm. I ride very slowly, which drives a lot of people mad because <laughs> I like to look around and stop and, mm. and look at things. Other people want to go as fast as they can from A to B, a lot of miles. And so I think it's important to get that sorted out before you... Uh, team up with somebody but yes meeting somebody along the road is 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 nice the driven chat podcast in association with paramex digital they do say don't they that the the two ways of really getting to know somebody either live with them or travel with them mm. and i guess if you're meeting them for the first time mid travel there's not often a, a lot of choices there sometimes you've just got to get on with it and go right i'm stuck with this guy or girl for a couple of days and then i'll find an excuse to go in a different direction <laughs> yeah at least you can get up to that point and if you've met somebody on a journey you can be like okay oh, I'm gonna go that way now yeah. you know you get you, you bumped into somebody you know on the street you walk with them for a bit and like okay well I'm gonna I'm gonna go left now if you're gonna go right and you're like <laughs> yeah. okay bye and then you just go around the block to then carry on where you want to go but if you start off on a journey yeah. and then you're like oh we don't get on like mm. I've been on holiday with the next before day one I thought we are not gonna stay together I had a whole 10-day <laughs> holiday road trip again around Iceland that was like well, this, this isn't gonna last but I had to do it anyway and you just kind of like get on with it and then you, you get to the end of it and you're like well Bye then. <laughs> was it because he clapped when the plane landed? <laughs> he, he, would, he stood up immediately he, as soon as the plane landed. He was one of them. Um, it wasn't a clapper. He was a, I'm going to stand up and meet yeah, us. Yeah, I thought this, this is. <laughs> yeah, it was like that. Um, okay, well, I mean, one thing I wanted to, I found interesting, I want to ask both, both of you, is when you get to the end of these journeys and you then fall back into real life, after you've had the first two, four, six weeks of people saying, hey, how was it? You know, tells of stories, this, that, the other. And then people are like, okay, back to normal life. And you think, well, hang on a minute. I've done this amazing trip. And how do you kind of either fall back into normality as such or kind of get over that feeling of being like, I've, I've just done this incredible journey and now I've got to figure out what the next step is. What do you 
do? Where, where's your both of your your kind of like mental states, I suppose, at that point for start, and then also your kind of life states? Well, I really struggled when I got back. <laughs> really, really struggled. Um, I think it was because my friends and family were totally disinterested in what I'd done. I mean, you kind of say, you say then, oh, you know, for the first five, five or six weeks, people are really excited and asking questions. Well, I mean, I had five hours oh, wow. if I was lucky. <laughs> you know, they were absolutely had zero interest in what I'd done. Uh, and I think, and I don't, at the time it was very hurtful. But I think now looking back, I just think they didn't really know what questions to ask. Mm. They couldn't actually relate to what I'd done. They didn't understand what I'd done. Because, you know, in the early 80s, it was a very unusual thing to do. And, and people hadn't really... There were very few people who had done trips like that then. So they didn't really even know what questions to ask me. And they had no interest in motorbikes either. So it was very much... Oh, you're home. Oh, great. Right. Do you want a cup of tea? And, and that was, <laughs> yeah. it, it was really yeah. odd. And I remember at the times I was kind of like, why isn't it? But then, and then I just locked myself in a basement for about six months. Um, and then I slowly managed to surface out of the basement <laughs> and spent about, uh, about six weeks uh, stripping my bike down and re rebuilding it, which was quite sort of therapeutic. Yeah. It was um, after she'd done me such good service. Um, so I literally completely stripped her down and I was totally absorbed in doing this. this and, and just sort of, you know, taking all the parts away. It was great. And, and so that kind of helped me a little bit. And then it just took probably a year or two years to, you know, I got a job. I worked as for a sort of architect's assistant. But I literally, I just used to go into the office and I just used to keep my head down and I just used to draw and I'd get up and I'd leave. And I don't think I spoke to anybody. I think they all thought I was really odd. <laughs> really odd. And then I gradually started to talk to a few people and then I went back to uni to finish off my architectural course. But even at uni, I just used to go in a minimum amount of time literally just just go in and see my tutor and I just leave as quickly as possible <laughs> and um and then and then I bought the water tower and then I was totally absorbed in doing up the water tower for seven years so and then I suppose I gradually kind of you know you work your way out out of it but I'm sure everybody has their own obviously it's different for everybody but it was for me probably one of the hardest things was coming home interesting what about you, Jackie? Oh, absolutely the same. I couldn't put it better than Elspeth did. It was, uh, I didn't have a job to come back to. I had my daughters to come back to, and by that time I had a granddaughter as well, which was exciting. But no, nobody was in the slightest bit interested uh, in what I did. And every time I tried to say, oh, well, when I was in such and such a country, and, and they, oh, here she goes again, and mm. you know, they, they do the yawn, and... Uh, it, it, no, I, I just stopped talking about it, um, and I couldn't stop travelling in my head. And I would—I was still wearing travelly type clothes, and I was—I was living on a, a boat in a, a, a huge thirty-six metre barge in Bristol Harbour, owned by my friend, um, as a stopgap because I—I I, I didn't know what to do with myself. I, um, I, and I just stayed living on this boat and tootling about. And uh, trying to trying to settle down and be normal, 
And I just couldn't. It took me a long time. And then he wanted the boat back because he was going to turn it into a hotel boat. So I had to then find somewhere to live. And uh, so I, I, I got a, a flat in Bristol where I still am. Um, and I, it, I would say it took me as long to settle down as I'd been travelling. Oh, wow. In fact, have I settled down? Yes, I think I have now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I fa what I think it happened to me is I found what I liked doing and was good at. And mm. I was quite good at sitting on a bike and going from place to place. And, yeah. and, and, and uh, it, it was something I enjoyed and found it hard to stop doing. Mm. But I also think it's, it's, it's when you come home, it's just actually really boring. You know, it yeah. really yeah. is boring yeah. because you've got to imagine if you're like on the move every day and you're you're constantly seeing different things and 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 but that's one element. But also because you are constantly having to deal with situations, exactly. solve problems. Right. Yes, it's it's this sort of and it's 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 really intense. Mm. And it's 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 almost like a drug, actually. You yeah. you 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 know you you. And when you're doing that every day, day after day, week, month, you know, for two and a half years. I mean, you were doing it for you know um, a lot longer. But and all of a sudden, that's just it's just gone, completely gone. Yeah, and right. you and and you you kind of and there's nothing to replace it. No. There's nothing to fill it to fill the gap of this constant intense. You know, seeing everything and travelling and... Yeah, because you've got to make minute-by-minute minute decisions. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, it's constantly thinking, what do I do here? How do I sort this out? How, yeah, how do I, and you know... language, and, and how do I say this, and, and how do I ask for that? And, yeah, you're and right. And it's exciting. It's and it's exciting, you know. You're seeing things every day is different, and, um, you know, you're encountering different people and situations, and it, suddenly that just vanishes overnight it's it's and it's really hard to and i and i think also because i i didn't prepare for it i hadn't really so like when i went on my trip i tried to mentally prepare myself for the things that could happen to me getting ill having accidents you know all these things that i would potentially have to deal with along the way and i tried to prepare myself the best i could but I think coming home and the total, um, I, I hadn't thought about what it was going to be like when mm. I got home. And I wasn't prepared mentally to deal with what I had to deal with. And I think that was part of the problem. Had I kind of realised, or if, or if somebody had said to me, oh, well, you do realise when you go home it's going to be quite tough, you know, then I might have mm. sort of said, oh, actually, maybe might be yeah. but I didn't at all I, I so I think that didn't help um, well I guess a seven-year project inside a water tower probably filled a bit of a hole well that's why I took it on I can imagine because <laughs> I guess I desperately desperately needed a challenge yeah I was I, so I, bored I thought I've got to find something to do that's it I think the idea of for a lot of us buying a Victorian water tower <laughs> that doesn't in any way, shape or form resemble a home would be quite a daunting, terrifying thing. A lot of people would say, oh, I like the idea of that, but maybe I'll buy it from the person that doesn't work in 10 years or something like that. But I guess for you, Ellsworth, it was, right, this is it. This is my next yeah. challenge. But that's where, you know, the things I learned about myself and mm. about, I, I learned on the trip 
that sort of led on to me buying the water tower. I don't think I would have bought the water tower had I not done my motorbike trip. Because when I bought the water tower, uh, it was one of the first, because uh, back in, because I bought it in 88, so there'd been, uh, so so no other towers had been converted. So there wasn't a sort of, you know, a, a precedent that had been set to convert water towers into houses. So I phoned up the local council uh, before I bought it at auction, and they basically said, we will never give you planning. To turn that into a house because we don't, un- we do not, we can't see how you're ever going to deal with all the technical problems, means of escape, fire. It's a listed building; you can't put any stairs on the outside. There's no way you can deal with all the, you know, the building regs or all the historic problems. We <laughs> just cannot see a way you can deal with it. So we don't think we will, you know, we will never give you planning to turn it into a house. And I just thought. I'll find a way. Challenge accepted. Challenge accepted, <laughs> exactly. But you see, I wouldn't have thought that way yeah. had I not done my round-the-world trip yeah. and had I not had um, problems to solve along the way on my round-the-world trip, which at the time would seem impossible to deal with. How am I going to get over this? How am I going to get across this border? How am I going to get my bike here? How am I going to fix it? Whatever. Um, but because I'd somehow dealt with all those problems along the way, and I never saw anything as a problem, I just saw it as a challenge. Mm. And that's why, and, and so I never would have bought the tower, I never would have had the courage to take on a, a project like this had I not done my, my round-the-world trip. So one thing led, leads to another. And sometimes, as we've discussed this before, previous recordings of previous guests, Sometimes you don't know at the time that the challenge that you are presented with, or better to say, the way that you dealt with a challenge has come from a previous or prior experience. It's sometimes you look back on the sequence of events that have since happened that might have been traumatic, might have been stressful, might have been brilliant. And you think a little light bulb will come on maybe five, ten years later where you go, oh, actually, that was manageable because of the things that I did previously. It was only actually when I wrote my book, which I wrote 35 years later, and it was when I was writing my book, all these kind of things, oh, well, actually, yeah, yeah, I probably, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't done that. Mm. And actually, you know, because I did that trip, I I was this kind of person when I came back, and that gave me strength, the courage, the whatever, to do this. And so it was actually writing my book that... Because when you're living your life, you just you just move on to the next thing. Yeah. You know, you 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 just you know you, you I mean you get back from the trip, you deal with nobody wants to know. You think <laughs> right, okay, let's finish my architecture. You then buy a water tower. You then <laughs> you're then buried for seven years. You know, nailing floorboards, doing plumbing, electrics, whatever. For the next seven years, you then have a child, you then do this, you then start up your architectural practice, and then you start to write a book, and then you look back at it all, and you think, oh, actually, quite a lot. And actually, I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't done that. So it's, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a very strange experience, actually, yeah. writing the book 35 years after I got back. But it's the most in-depth debrief that you have of your collective journeys that yeah. you could possibly do. Is because it's I suppose it's like a people say that when you um if, you know if you if, if a form of therapy is to journal and people say you know mm-hmm. maybe you should journal every day to talk about how you're feeling and things like that and 
to go and think about something that changed both of you immensely as people to then unpick it and think well, about that story and that accident and who I met there and, and how it all led on to this. It's a very invasive to yourself way of thinking, okay, how did I feel over that period of time and how do I feel now looking back at that? And mm. it's, um, I don't know, yeah, there must have been times where you're both writing your books thinking, God, that was, yeah, that was either... Yeah, I mean, for sort of me, it was quite interesting because when I was, uh, a lot of it was actually dealing with my relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's what I found quite interesting about the book. Actually, writing them was quite good to get it out mm -hmm. of my system. And especially my relationship with my parents and the way that they reacted to me doing the trip, when they, the way they reacted when I got back from the trip, you know, uh, even. I mean, they never, ever saw my uh, trip as any kind of achievement whatsoever. I mean, they never even spoke about it, um, ever. And they didn't mention it to their friends. They didn't... Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was like I never did it. It was like it was a bit of a, a you know, a blip that I had in my, in my you know... <laughs> growing up that that now I'd got over that and so so it wasn't to be discussed and wasn't to be mentioned they literally they never ever saw it as any kind of achievement and and writing my book it sort of I managed to get it all out of my system <laughs> yeah, and I suppose which was really nice yeah and which was a good thing to do and now I've kind of laid it all to rest um I suppose it, it does remind you both of what an achievement you've both done to be able to look back and go oh yeah I did succeed that or you know as you talk about your challenges and the, the problems that you have to face and then the way it makes you look at problems now to be able to write your books and then go yeah I, I did that I actually did that and I should feel proud of myself and I suppose I mean John you and I have talked about this in, in quite a lot just personally as well the idea when you when you go through something very difficult or you know challenging or whatever everything else after that is like well that's this is easy, you know, I did that, you know. I yeah. You see, for years when I got back, because nobody was interested, I just kind of tucked it all away and got on with my architecture, building water towers and whatever. And and even I didn't really think of it as much of an achievement. It was just something, something I did in like a past life. And it's really... An it's, achievement now? Well, now I do, only because everybody keeps telling me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here recording a podcast. <laughs> I know, exactly. And, um, but I still find it odd mm. that people seem to think it's such an achievement. Mm. I still find it hard to, to kind of accept it. Because for 30 or 35 years, I didn't think of it as any kind of achievement. I just got on with the next thing in my life. But you do know? you think that is because of the reaction from others? Because at Probably. the time of getting back, I'm sure you were elated and you would have thought it was incredible. Well, I was glad to be home. I, I think I was, I wouldn't say elated. I think I just thought, oh, I've done it, you know. Yeah. And, and that was sort of it. And then nobody was interested and then I thought, oh, well, whatever. And then, and then I just kind of m moved on to the next thing. So even I didn't really think of it as much of an, uh, you, know, um, you know, achievement. Um, what about you, Jackie? Do you, do you kind of think to yourself, I've achieved that? Well, similar to Elspeth, I didn't. I didn't think I had done anything outstanding at all. I'd had a really lovely time, and um, I didn't get much accolade from friends and family either. Because, like Elspeth said, you can't understand what it's like if you've got no idea what it's uh, what it's like. Um, 
Oh, I've got a bit lost. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you feel like you've, you've achieved um, something? It wasn't until somebody said, I was just, I had the, because I was living on the boat and the bike was parked outside and, and, and I'd written the names of the countries on the side in, in um, correction fluid. As I'd gone through countries, I'd borrow the correction fluid and write on the battery box <laughs> and uh, the air box and uh, people would stop and look and, and they said, oh, we've, you know, we've been in all those places, yes. And then people started saying, you did what? <laughs> and then I thought, oh, oh, well, I suppose, yeah. And then, then this happened. <laughs> yeah, I've still got the bike, and it's still got the the funny writing on the side. In Tipex, <laughs> it's fantastic. I again, I'm going to try not to delve too deep, but I I want to pick up on Amy. You've highlighted it there. That kind of the reflection on challenges, and sometimes even at the time of a big challenge, you don't quite comprehend just how significant that might be for an event moving forward. And I'm a big fan of certainly using less pleasant times to gauge and and maybe take a step back from current stresses and say, well, actually, I've been through far worse than this, therefore mm. I know I can handle it. And a bit like on the adventures that you've been on, you know, I'm thinking about breaking down in remote parts of the world where there is nobody else that speaks English and the nearest town or village might be a good sort of hour's walk away, maybe a, lot, a hell of a lot more. And at the time, you're just getting on with it. You're just fixing it. But on further reflection, thinking back on that, you might think, God, that could have been really scary. That could have been quite a, quite a difficult time. And do you often find, even, even today, be them fairly trivial in comparison issues or life chapters or other people with struggles, do you often find yourself reflecting and thinking back to individual moments at individual times in your trips? Yeah, I've just remembered that your, one of your first questions was, uh, was there any, any uh, ever any time when you thought you weren't doing the right thing? Yes, <laughs> there, were two, there were two occasions when I put myself and the bike on small boats, and uh, I thought I was going to die on both occasions. Um, one was from Malaysia to Indonesia, and the other one was from Colombia to Panama, and and both times was just dreadful. Um, so yes, and I, I think now, in reply to this question, uh, I think I, if I survived that, I can do anything. Uh, they were uh, awful experiences, and I, I really do think I was going to die. Very few times in my life have I thought, oh, this is it. Uh, but those, those times, both of them. So I'm never getting on a small boat with my bike ever again. In fact, I'm never going to get on a small boat ever again. I love that you, you, never, you say you'd never go on a small boat with your bike again, yet the minute you got back from your trip, you stayed on a boat with your bike. Uh, yeah, well, it, wasn't, it was more... It, was it wasn't going anywhere. It was 36 metres. Yeah. <laughs> have you written about both of those boats? Um, I have, yes. Have you? Yes. I, I don't know how I could have forgotten to tell you that. At the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> All the experiences I've had, uh, those two are the only ones that I think oh gosh they still chill me really mm. oh, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely genuinely excited to, to read your book Jackie because I mean no you'll think what an idiot no, doing it twice <laughs> no I don't really because the thing is like after reading your your book Elspeth and I know I know I'm gonna have this same thing with you Jackie you just feel and just talking to you now you feel inspired be like yeah I could go and do something like in my head while I was talking, talking to you. 
my other half has always said, you know, I'd love to go and um, travel around the world in a, in a Mark II Jaguar. And in my head, I'm now starting to think about, well, when could we do that? You know, maybe we've got to wait until a bit longer, whatever. And so it's ins- inspirational to be able to hear you talk about your stories and uh, you know, when you read your books. And I mean, I hope people listening to this also feel inspired to do these events, not necessarily even around the world or from India back to the UK or whatever. But sometimes these little adventures can be like going wild camping for the first night, you know, going with your motorcycle or your car with a tent and be like, right, I'm going to pitch up somewhere on the side of the road and sleep for the night. That could be the adventure they never, you know, thought they'd be able to do or thinking, oh, this is a bit scary. I don't know if I'm allowed to stop here, this, that and the other. What kind of tips would you give these people either listening, thinking I've never done an adventure before and I want to be, become more adventurous or to people who are thinking I want to do the, the huge kind of life-changing trips, what things would you, not, not necessarily logistical things, although you can give out as tips, but what things would you want to say to these people? I would say um, start off small and work up slowly. Okay. That's the way, <laughs> that's the way that I did it. So if you and never so work you, out, and so you, so you build up your confidence. Okay. Um, I mean, certainly when I bought my, my R60 uh, first time, I wouldn't have just gone off around the world you know you have to do one trip then you do a bigger trip then you do a bigger trip then you see if you like it then you learn how you travel you learn how you deal with stuff you learn about yourself and so you that was the way that I did it I built it up you know kind of slowly and so yeah if your thing is about and you will be amazed what you can do if you just do it you just have to do it and all your fears will just... And I, actually, I always say one of the hardest things is leaving. Really? Mm. Yeah. Leaving is one of the hardest things. Okay. Um, once you leave and once you're on the road, you realise how easy it is mm. and, what, and how fantastic it is. And I mean, the, I, I, I can't count the number of people who've said, oh, yeah, I was going to do a round-the-world trip, but, well, I couldn't because I didn't quite have this or I didn't... Mm. They just think of a hundred reasons why mm-hmm. not to do it. And there'll always be reasons yeah. why not to do it. You just have to want to do it enough. Mm. There will always be reasons. You will always be able to talk yourself out mm. of why it's now it's not quite the right time. I haven't quite got the right bike. I haven't quite mm. got enough money. Mm. I haven't quite got the right gear. I haven't quite got the right... You know, just go. You, you, can't, you can't let those kind of things stop you. You mm. just have to go. And if you just go and leave and do it, you will be amazed how easy it is. And how amazing it is. Mm. Quite the metaphor for life, really, isn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> it is, really. It's, you know, and often it, it is the case. You know, you, we talk to people who've set up businesses or have decided to pack up and move overseas or completely change their career. And everyone, almost everyone says the same thing. And it's the, the again, it's upon reflection on it, you think, God, I wish I'd done it earlier. I wish I'd done it sooner. For the pan- yeah, pandemic was a perfect example. A lot of people lost jobs and lost businesses. I myself was running a travel business that went away because of it all. But if it wasn't for that challenge at the time that then spurs you on to go, well, I'm going to do something else now because I have to. Yeah, exactly. And, and if it. you have to do it, it's the same with solving problems. If you have to solve a problem, you'll do it. That's right. Because if you don't do it, you'll die or you'll starve. <laughs> yeah, or well, you know, yeah. you have to do it. And if you're pushed into doing these things, it's, it's this whole thing of testing yourself to the limit, pushing yourself to your limits, you realise how much more you can do. Yeah. And, in, and if you're always going to sit in that little comfortable zone of never pushing yourself and never taking yourself out of this you 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 I just 
you know, you can't really evolve as a person, I don't think. I think you need, you need to push yourself. I think the vast and you will be staggered what you can do. Correct, correct. And I think the vast majority of people, we're quite lucky in the, the sense of, on the whole, as, a, as the human race, we're quite lucky in the modern world of medicine and we all live longer now and it's a lot easier to diagnose illnesses and just life in general is a lot easier than it was, say, only 100 years ago, which really isn't that long ago. So for a lot of us as adults, we don't really experience trauma for the vast majority of us, fortunately, until our adult life. We might, it might be losing parents, it might be losing friends, it might be losing family members. But for me, and again, without wanting it to sound a bit too self-indulgent, I went through quite a traumatic experience in my teenage years, which was losing a parent. I lost my mum at the age of 15. And at the time, of course, it was horrible. It was the worst thing ever. But the result of that happening, the sequence of events that happened a year or well, a few years following that, have enabled me to look at life in exactly that way and think, mm. oh my goodness me, I have the strength to deal with that. And I had the strength to deal with it then. So I'm always going to have the strength to deal with whatever comes next. And I think far too few people in the world realise that inner strength that they actually have until it's far too mm. late, mm. until they are themselves 50, 60, 70 years old and they realise, oh my goodness me, I've been through all this trauma now. I could have dealt with it maybe even more efficiently as a teenager or as a, somebody in my early 20s. So I do hope that there are people listening to this that, you know, it doesn't have to be a around-the-world trip that you're hoping to embark on, but it might just be that one change in life where you're thinking, oh, I, I just, you know, the timing's not right, the money's not right, the, the setup and the surrounding's not right. It never will be because mm. nothing can prepare you for those horrible events that are going to come along in life because they will come. It's just a case of allowing yourself to realise that when you do have to get on with it, you will. And as you said, Jackie, chances are it's going to be fine. Yes, absolutely. And I also would like to say you don't have to have the latest, flashiest, uh, flashiest equipment either. Mm. Um, and you've seen my... No, you haven't seen my bike, have you? I think you uh, showed me a photograph when we oh, did the yeah. shooting. Beautiful. It, it's a beautiful bike and, mm. I, and I love it. And you, but you don't have to have the biggest, latest model of the blah-de-blah -blah number, this, that and the other letter. <laughs> and blah, blah. You can just go on anything. And, and, and I'm sure Elspeth has found the same, that when you're, when you're travelling around the world, there's other people doing it on tiny bikes and somebody well somebody nathan traveled yeah. from australia to britain on a on a step through home to step through posty bike <laughs> and uh, and had a brilliant time so you don't need the latest expensive stuff just just go mentally you have to be it's it's far more important than being mentally prepared mm. And having the mental whatever to, to get through it than what bike you've got. Mm. As, as yes. Jackie says, you can do it on anything. It all just comes down to comfort and speed. Mm. That's it. I like it. I mean, I've, I've truly loved chatting to you both. And I, could, I, I wish that we could kind of like do one of these every month because it just, I, feel, <laughs> I now feel inspired to go off and be like, ah, I'm going to plan something. Like, uh, this, for instance, is Mark 2. I know there's a Mark 2 for sale right now, and Will has been looking at it. And I'm, I might have to ring him and be like, Should we just do it? As you said, you just think to yourself, Whenever it's going to be the right time, and it won't be the right time. And um, yeah, so I might have to leave this podcast and just go on the phone call. It's charging, isn't it? You it feel is. charged, you feel inspired. When, when I always find this when, when talking to people that have done such amazing things, and even if at the time it didn't feel amazing, or the initial reaction when you got back wasn't amazing, it, it is amazing. And mm. it's, and it's amazing, if not for any other reason other than there were some really, really tough times and you got through it. Mm. 
and that has enabled you to push forward. I, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. I think you're both absolutely, genuinely inspiring. And I'm in awe of you both, I really am. It makes me want to go and ride around the world immediately. <laughs> um, now, obviously, there'll be people listening at home who are going to want to read about the inner depths of what you've done. You've both got books. Um, what are they called? Where can people find them? Uh, my book is called Lone Rider, and it's published by Michael O'Mara Books, and it is available in all good bookshops <laughs> and on Amazon. <laughs> And also from my website, if you would like a signed copy, which is just elspethbeard.com. Fantastic. Jackie. My book is called Hit the Road, Jack. Seven years, 20 countries, no plan. <laughs> um, published by Chevy Press and available from Amazon, Kindle, Audible. And um, if you want a signed copy, via my website, jackieferno.com. Fantastic. And we'll include the, um, the website links for those as well in our little bio, so anyone listening can scroll down and see that in the, uh, in the description below uh, to get those links, because who wouldn't want a signed copy? Everybody should get a signed copy. Yes, <laughs> I feel very lucky that I have signed copy from both of you. So, <laughs> um, so I guess that just yeah, leaves us to say a, a huge thank you once again, um, firstly for hosting us in your beautiful home, Elspeth. This is just, I'm still... A little bit excited by it, <laughs> by that in general, uh, but yes, uh, to both of you for taking the time to talk to us and hopefully inspire a few other listeners at home for whatever that challenge is in life that they're looking forward to. Do um, let us know if this has inspired you and what you're going to do. I would love to hear your, your own stories. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Get in contact with the show podcast at drivenchat.com or visit the website drivenchat.com. There's a contact field there. You can get in contact with us and see all of the things that we do. Uh, for now, I will say thank you to everyone here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I knew it would be fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and to you, dear listener, we shall speak to you next week. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Oh, wow, you've made it to the end, the very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.